Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak. This virus laid bare the severe shortcomings of the current administration. That is largely incompetent and whose incompetence and recklessness have threatened the lives of many, many people in our country. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, recording uh, live from my closet because our offices are closed due to coronavirus. Joining me today is Ezra Klein from his house in California. And I guess that's that's the story, really. We're social distancing. Is, uh, yes, we are. We are social distancing. Jeff Geld is on a weird conference call with us. It's a it's a miracle. And so we, we want to talk about this, um, th- this virus. And it's finally sort of gotten into the political bloodstream in a real way, in a, in a policy kind of way. Donald Trump delivered a Oval Office address in which he announced some new policy ideas. And it was I, I, I keep like checking my notes on this because like it's crazy. But what he said is that he was going to shut down all travel from Europe, including of goods, and also that insurance companies at his direction were going to cover all coronavirus testing and treatment costs. We will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The new rules will go into effect Friday at midnight. And these prohibitions will not only apply to the tremendous amount of trade and cargo, but various other things as we get approval. Anything coming from Europe to the United States is what we are discussing. Earlier this week, I met with the leaders of health insurance industry who have agreed to waive all co-payments for coronavirus treatments extend insurance coverage to these treatments and to prevent surprise medical billing. Almost none of that was true. Like, it's not unusual for Donald Trump to say things that aren't true, but it was so odd in that particular context. The the actual policy is that people who, who are not U.S. citizens who have been to Europe in the past 14 days can't come. Uh, there are no restrictions on trade. Insurance companies have not agreed to pay the cost of treatment for coronavirus. And then there was also a payroll tax cut announced, but that doesn't seem to be moving us uh, very smoothly through Congress. Right. And then he's floated this idea in a number of venues that we should suspend the payroll tax either through Election Day or through the end of the year. Um, so that's that's what he's doing. And it's I mean, it's almost nothing except that the payroll tax cut, if it happens, is like a trillion dollar thing. So 
it's both a lot and very little. But the oddest thing about the payroll tax proposal as an economic recovery proposal is that it's completely non-responsive to the like specific problems posed by coronavirus. Yeah, why don't we back up for a minute here? Because I think you, as we think about the policy responses, we have to think about what are they responding to? And so there are a couple different buckets. There is an, like a public health crisis and every day it is getting exponentially worse. And you can just look around right now. The NBA has suspended its season. Like everything you can think of is getting canceled. We have no idea the scale of transmission, but the more we know, the scarier it becomes. We are doing a lot less testing than a place like South Korea has been. So we really don't know what we're dealing with on the ground. But one of the things that I find personally unnerving is with every couple of minutes that goes by, you hear about just more people you have heard of who have now been exposed, including, by the way, President Donald Trump. Um, by the time this comes out, we will know if President Bolsonaro in Brazil, who was with Donald Trump, actually has coronavirus, but somebody else who is in the Brazilian uh, cabinet did and, and, and met with Trump. Uh, Bolsonaro has been exposed. Uh, Justin Trudeau is currently on self-quarantine. So obviously, political leaders meet a lot of people in the course of their days and so are, are vectors for transmission. Uh, Tom Hanks has coronavirus. But at some level, just when you see this many people coming down with it at very high levels of government and, and culture who knew what was going on. And so at some level, been probably taking some precautions. It is very scary. So we have the public health crisis, which needs to be responded to. And we have done an unbelievably horrible job, particularly rolling out testing. Then we have the economic crisis. It is creating markets have been collapsing. We've had to a couple of different times stop trading uh, on the stock market because it was falling so quickly. You have the just wage and job losses among people. And then you're just going to have the day-to-day disruptions in people's lives, what I've been calling the social recession, is people can't see each other. The elderly and the disabled are going to be much more isolated. So these are all crises that require different policy responses. One of them is ongoing, and the administration is clearly messing it up in a, in a grievous way. And that was, to me, sort of the, the, the surprise us at, uh, at, at Trump's speech. As you mentioned, he had this travel ban thing. He brought up the payroll tax cut again. But what there particularly wasn't was an admission that they're going to have to be doing something very different to fight the public health crisis itself. There's just less about coronavirus itself in that speech than one might have expected. Right. And, you know, uh, Trump doesn't admit mistakes. So I wasn't expecting him to say he'd done anything wrong in the testing or anything like that. But he didn't announce any new initiatives around testing. And the federal government continues to not provide any guidance around social distancing. A lot of social distancing things are happening, which seems good. It seems to be what experts say we should be doing. Uh, Major League Baseball is delaying the season, things like that. But normally in this situation, I would expect to see the federal government say something, right? So school districts, for example, I know in, in Washington and in other big cities, they are trying to balance the concern that schools could be vectors of infection with the reality that lots of low-income households, all kinds of households will be inconvenienced, but it's it's harder on low-income households to not have their kids in school. And also that kids rely on free and reduced price breakfasts and lunches at school. And so if school goes away, you could create a different kind of humanitarian crisis in which kids are alone at home, in which families don't have 
food that they need. And it's a it's like a hard decision for mayors and school chancellors. And the federal government could both be saying something about where they think the balance of risks are, because, you know, the mayor of a mid-sized American city does not have access to CDC quality public health expertise. But also the federal government could be taking steps to relieve that tension, right? This is purely a question of, can we get a not that large amount of money into the hands of low-income families so we can be sure that they will be able to feed their children if they're not able to rely on the public school system as a mechanism for feeding their children? It's like, I know in in like our school, parents and, and the principal are organizing around this to try to backstop nutritional support for families who need it. But this is like why we have a government and talking about payroll tax cuts, it's not relevant, you know, and it's I'm not even as hostile to the payroll tax idea as many economists I have spoken to. It seems to me it could actually be pretty helpful, but there are a number of more acute kinds of problems that you need somebody to be thinking through. We, we haven't seen Betsy DeVos like anywhere in the universe, even as this like problem is rippling through K-12 school systems all across the country. There are a couple of things here. So one is that President Donald Trump has a tendency to fit crises into pre-existing conceptual areas of expertise for him. And one pre-existing area of conceptual expertise for him is the stock market. He believes himself as a great businessman to really understand the economy. He's been very concerned. He's been very public about this. He has said things very explicitly to this effect that the panic over coronavirus is going to hurt the stock market, hurt the economy. And so one thing he's clearly been do, trying to do, I think, in a, in a quite dangerous way, is downplay information about the coronavirus to, to to maintain economic support. Um, That, I think, also goes to things like the payroll tax cut. And he has certainly been floating ideas to bail out various industries, including the hotel industry. He has a tendency to look at the parts of the economy he understands quite well. And like as an employer and as a person, he has paid payroll taxes. So it seems like a big deal to him. But I will just note the reason a lot of economists are, are hostile to this as a way to increase economic uh, stimulus very rapidly is it just doesn't do that much for a lot of people. If you look at the Penn Wharton budget model, it gives a tax cut of $320 to people in the bottom quintile over uh, 2020. And it gives a $70,000 tax cut for people in the top 0.1%. Now, what we're concerned about is people spending. The people who are going to reduce their spending most rapidly are the people with the least amount of money to spend, the people who are most exposed to disruptions in service sector jobs, gig economy, et cetera. And so you can just send them checks, right? You don't have to do something through the tax code, which given the structure of the tax code is going to be a much bigger break for, for richer people than poor people. You could just send everybody a $1,500 check. That $1,500 check is... Um, a much larger percentage of what poor people make given you know whatever the frequency you're doing that in is. So there's a lot you could do here that would be a more direct way of increasing spending and support among people who need it most. The second thing, though, that I, I do want to point out here, I sent out a tweet uh, about a week ago when Donald Trump was still downplaying, downplaying the severity of the crisis quite uh, aggressively, where I said that we are about to see a very fast transition from downplaying coronavirus to using it as an excuse for scapegoating and xenophobia. And it's going to happen very fast. 
And I would say in that speech, it happened very fast. Donald Trump went from this isn't a huge deal. We're controlling it. Great. The testing has been perfect. You know, not as perfect as my phone call with Ukraine, but pretty perfect. Nevertheless, the heat is going to take it away. We've only had 11 cases. I mean, on and on and on to it's the Chinese coronavirus. We need to cut uh, and, and ban travel from China. From Europe, uh, you've already had people, particularly on the right, really emphasizing this idea that it is a foreign virus being like pushed at us by foreign countries. It is about closing our borders. And so I would say that in a way that is typical for Donald Trump, there are things that he comes into this with pre-existing strong feelings in. He's not somebody who likes learning new things very much, but he does have a certain number of intuitions that he relies on very strongly. And I think here you're seeing that, again, that his intuitions are support the stock market, cut taxes, particularly for you know employers and, 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 and the kind of taxes he pays and fear outsiders. And that has formed the basis of his response, in addition to just a generalized preference for PR, happy communication, kind of believing your own bullshit, which I think has hampered us quite badly. And it should be said, this is not just a political question. We are on the path and and currently undergoing an exponential increase in cases. We look to be doing worse, not just in South Korea or Singapore, but then Italy. Um, and so things over the next two weeks, I think, are going to get bad in a way we are still quite unprepared for. In Italy, they have closed basically all businesses that are not groceries and pharmacies. Uh, they've quarantined the entire country. We are probably doing worse than they are in terms of slowing the, the transmission rate. And so where this could end up two weeks from now, because we are where Italy was two weeks ago in terms of infection cases, I think this is about to get really bad. In that speech, Trump didn't say anything about health care, about the public right. health system, right? And there is clearly going to be a need to do something. State and local governments are going to see their budgets busted uh, by the need to provide relief. There are questions about, you know, we have millions, as Donald Trump is well aware, we have millions of undocumented immigrants living in the United States of America. And reasonable people can disagree about immigration policy. But one of the things he has done is tried to make those people live in tremendous fear of coming into any kind of contact with public authorities, right? And he doesn't have a plan to make them vast over the next 24 hours. And you actually want people to cooperate with case tracers. You want people who have serious illnesses to seek treatment, uh, things like that. That's all out the window. And he's gone further and he's adopted these um, public burden rules, which are going to say that legal immigrants who are here, if they take public assistance in the form of Medicaid, for example, they might now become ineligible to get permanent resident status down the road. So you're creating a situation in which lots of people are going to be fearful of obtaining uh, public health services that they need, and no additional resources are going into the, the system. And, you know, you talked about xenophobia. And, and what's interesting here is that at the very beginning of the, this crisis, when it was really limited to China. Trump was not demagogic about the problem at that point, but he was very bought in on border control as a solution. A lot of experts sort of poo-pooed this and said, you know, it doesn't work. I've seen studies usually from social scientists who are not public health people, uh, but just kind of doing statistical work. Let's say that, you know, border control does work. It does sort of uh, slow the, the spread of things. But Trump was so supremely confident in border control as a solution that he didn't do anything else. 
he put these China travel restrictions on and he's still talking like last night. He's bragging about how the reason this has hit Europe sooner than us is that Europe didn't do those restrictions. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's plausible. But so he bought time. But then the question is, what did we do with that time? And the answer is we didn't do anything. Like, literally nothing was done in the United States of America to prepare for the possibility that these border control systems might fail. And now we're talking about new border measures, where, again, one can argue about whether it's a good idea or not, but it's clearly not, like, the thing that is going to stop a virus that has already infected thousands of Americans. Like, halting travel by Europeans might be a good idea, it might not be a good idea, but we need to be taking other kinds of actions. And the president seems incapable of engaging on any level with like a public health problem as a concept. All he's done, as far as I can tell, is now once again upset the apple cart, where for a couple days it seemed like Mike Pence was in charge, which, you know, was nice in the sense that Mike Pence... um, can at least read a teleprompter correctly, which the president seems to be struggling with. But now, like, is he in charge? We haven't seen him now in 24 hours as the situation gets gets worse and worse. We had this absurd scenario last night where the White House account tweeted out something about the travel restrictions. And then Ken Cuccinelli, the acting deputy secretary of Homeland Security, had to do a quote tweet to, like, correct the White House's own messaging on it. And it's like truly like through the looking glass stuff. But it's reminding me that back when Donald Trump was campaigning for president, this is what we were all worried about. The actual Trump administration, you know, it's been pretty bad in a lot of ways. He's done a lot of things I disagree with. But the kind of really dark scenarios that you might have read about in Vox.com or in takes written by me had really not occurred. But like this is it. Like this is a president who has no idea what he's doing. It's quite bad. I think that actually is a good bridge to Joe Biden because this has all happened amidst Joe Biden. I mean, absolutely dominating on two super two Tuesday or whatever we're calling the second big (laughs) Tuesday. He won Michigan. He won Washington, which was very surprising. So he really does look at this point like the prohibitive favorite in the Democratic race, um, absent something very unusual happening. And so on Thursday, he gave a an address, as did Bernie Sanders, and we'll talk about them both. But on Thursday, he gave an address about coronavirus. And the meta message of that address very much was, you've seen how Donald Trump is handling this. Now, you're basically going to see Joe Biden live action role playing president, right? He's going to like the, the, the meta message is like, this is what it will look like and feel like if Joe Biden is president. And he gave a very sober, calm, clear address that came packaged with a a pretty expansive agenda for what to do about coronavirus. And so to go through it in a couple different ways, the big picture of it, I would say, is if you've been talking to public health professionals and economists and listening to what it is they want to do, well, then so has Joe Biden. And so he just had this very expansive plan that was very much an emergency response plan. It wasn't a bunch of things Joe Biden had wanted to do anyway that he was now like kind of jamming in here. It was just like, this is what he was hearing from Ron Klain, who is one of his top advisors that ran um, the Ebola response for America under the Obama administration and a bunch of other top public health and economist peoples. And and here's what we're going to do. One of the notable things going to what you just said there at the end, Matt, is that if you look at his plan, the top thing on it is restoring trust, credibility and common purpose. And I will just say that this is a point where Donald Trump has created a a pretty big opening for Biden or anyone else, which is Trump has been saying a lot of things that are wrong. 
he's been quite divisive in how he's handled this. And so he creates space for just one plank. And in fact, even the primary plank of somebody's plan to be just be I won't be Donald Trump during this. And it's worth noting that over the past two weeks, the American people have gone from saying they approved of the administration's handling of coronavirus to that's inverting and a disapproval is rapidly outpacing approval. So there's a pretty big vulnerability here. But what Biden is proposing is a lot of different things, but I would say two very big buckets um, or three very big buckets. The first one is testing. I think everybody who is watching this agrees that testing has been a debacle under the Trump administration. So Biden is proposing a bunch of measures to release testing much more widely, to set up mobile testing sites, at least 10 in every state, um, but but many more in the affected places uh, to make sure testing is free for all who want it. And I think it was actually pretty important to be, he's saying that we should be having data daily real-time reporting every single day. We should know how many people in America got tested. He also, and this is very important if you have been talking to, to public health folks, has some plans for how do you how do you push testing out to those who may not know they need to do it, right? So there's one question about if you call your doctor and say, I want a test because I think I might have been exposed, but how do we do actually the surveillance levels to know who should potentially get a test because they have been exposed, even though they didn't know it, they live in a nursing home where somebody is now in self-quarantine, that kind of thing. So that's one bucket. The next thing he's doing that is another capacity thing that Trump should have been doing during this period that he says he bought time or China says they bought his time or whatever, we've had a couple of weeks, is rapidly expanding uh, the capacity of the healthcare system itself. If you've seen these charts going around about flattening the curve, we had a version on Vox, which uh, a lot of people have been sharing. The idea of flattening the curve is that even if, hopefully you're not dealing with the same number of cases, but even if you are, if you can slow down the rate of transmission, so instead of having 1 million cases over three months, you have them over 16 months or something, you can then keep it underneath your level of healthcare system capacity because a lot of people get coronavirus. In order to keep them alive, they need to be in the ICU for an extended period of time. They need to be on ventilators. Uh, they, they, they just need healthcare capacity. We don't have a lot of excess of healthcare capacity. The healthcare system is a for-profit business, as Bernie Sanders will often tell you. That remains true even under anything, right? Nobody's saying we're going to nationalize all the hospitals, so they don't have that many extra beds. So Biden has plans for how do you set up basically temporary hospitals. We've seen this happening in other countries. It has happened during past pandemics. He wants to activate. We have basically a medical reserve corps that is attached to the army and other things, probably about 200,000 medical professionals who could be mobilized to some degree or another. So there are a bunch of plans there. And then he has a very large set of stimulus plans, including, um, and I'm, I'm reading here some from his, but everything from state and local emergency relief to increasing uh, Medicaid matching, which are these are basically like deep, normal, automatic stabilizers you would do. We've really not heard anything about them from the Trump administration, food stamps, that kind of thing, um, expanding paid leave, possibly doing work sharing arrangements because you may be uh, falling into recession. And then he says, and I really do think this is important because as I've been talking to economists, I think this could be pretty, pretty big. Um, this could look a lot like the financial crisis. There is just a plank that says more will be needed. And it says Biden understands a crisis will have broader economic impacts that will no doubt require further action. The steps outlined above, and there are more than I've mentioned, must be taken immediately. And then Congress must move to understand the broader economic implications and act accordingly. He said in his speech that um, 
money really cannot be the thing we are thinking about here. It will be cheaper to act now than to act later. And I think he's right. So that was a speech. It was very much if you watched it, like he seemed calm and in control, like he'd been listening to good people. This was the kind of agenda you might have expected from someone. Um, I thought it was reasonably effective, but also it was a very sharp contrast with Donald Trump, who had given a nationally televised speech the night before. And there was just much less meat in it. Yeah. And, you know, look, this plan, the whole text of it, I mean, like it's a it's a pretty good it's a pretty good document. Right. And, you know, it makes you wonder, like, why can't the president of the United States throw together a comparably sophisticated and detailed plan, especially because, you know, an interesting thing about this is that Biden, you know, is a is a well-known political figure uh, for, for all these years, uh, well-liked in a lot of circles. And he is not somebody who has cultivated uh, or has like a reputation as a, a policy savant, right? There's even a funny article from, uh, I think, his first presidential campaign where he's like saying to a reporter that one thing he's got to work on to improve his uh, skills as a candidate is to like know more about policy. Um, and you know, it's it's like a funny thing, but he's like he's like a politician's politician. But this document is a reminder that there's like a big middle ground in the universe between like Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump. Right. And it's like called you hire some people to work for you who know what they're doing. And like he has assembled you know, there's like lots of little detailed things in here, like exactly what I was talking about before about school lunches, you know. And so there's like a mechanism to provide grants to state and local governments. And there's a formula written down here in how the funds will be split between state and local governments. And there's a thing about the broad discretion that will be allowed and categories of things you can do. I seriously doubt that Biden himself like sat down and wrote this all out. Uh, but he's got even though it's like his campaign has not raised that much money, you know, like it's not that big of an operation. It's certainly not as big an operation as the federal government, uh, but it still clearly reflects the input of a fairly broad range of experts. And it does the kind of thing that a president needs to do, which is, you know, I've, I've done a lot of um, interviews related to coronavirus. And one thing that you see is, you know, you talk to a public health person and they talk a lot about public health. You talk to an economist, they talk a lot about economics. Sometimes their ideas are complementary. Sometimes there's a tension between them. And Part of the art of politics, of, you know, leadership, is you have to try to synthesize these different ideas, these different considerations. I don't know that, like, Biden's plan strikes the right balance on absolutely every one of these points. It's legitimately difficult, but it attempts to do that. It's not just, like, two things that are out of thin air, which is how I saw the, the Trump plan. It's like, nobody can fly from Europe, and also there's a payroll tax cut. And then everything that you might wonder about, like, should we cancel this? Like, what are we going to do if people can't work? He says nothing about. And, and Biden, it's like, just a reminder, this is like professional politics. And I assume a conservative will look at this and say, like, ah, they're spending too much money, right? There's too much stuff here in social welfare programs. And so maybe you could come up with a different idea. But Trump is not attempting to, like, address the range of topics that are at issue here. It doesn't seem to be able to, like, fit within his mind. But he's also not capable of delegating that work to somebody else who will just do it. Right. And we could we could have a document. And it's it's weird. And it's amazing how low the bar has been set. Like, I watched that Biden speech and I felt so good about it. And it's like not a great speech. You know what I mean? Like, we're not going to, like, study that in the record books of rhetoric or something. But it's like a prof 
professional politician speech. It's it's reassuring. He has a lot to say. There are more details behind everything. You're not sitting there and then they're backfilling like, oh, no, he didn't mean what he said there. And I, I mean, <sighs> this is like a disturbing time in American life, in my opinion. Two things I'll note on that. And, and I do want to talk about Bernie Sanders' speech, too. But two things about the, the Biden speech. One is it's just worth remembering that the people around Biden have dealt with both financial and public health crises before. Biden is being advised by people who were managing not just the policy response, but also the communications response during the financial crisis in 2009. He's being advised by people who are managing not just the epidemiological and public health response, but also the communications response during Ebola. And so just something you see in here is the learned lessons of how do you communicate during one of these crises in a way that calms people while getting the information out. And you just really see the absence of that in both Donald Trump and his immediate staff. And, and I do think it shines through. The other thing, I thought you made a good point, Matt, that, that is worth emphasizing that it is not the case, as I think a lot of liberals would like to have it be, that, say, border controls are totally useless in when you need to deal with quarantines or some kind of public health emergency. But xenophobia is really bad because you actually need a lot of international cooperation simultaneously. You may want to close your borders, but you want to do it without pissing off the Chinese, right? You want to do it without demonizing the people you need to work with. And there is a whole section here and was a whole section in Biden's speech, which you can even tell a bit in his delivery that he feels strongly about it, given his own background as foreign relations chair. And, you know, he's somebody who was often thought of as a potentially a secretary of state, but about international engagement, about how do we deal with our allies on this? There's simply no doubt that coronavirus is going to be a global problem. Um, it already is a global problem. It began in China. It spread to, to to the Middle East, to Europe. It spread here. We are going. We are going to need good information on it from all kinds of places in order to stop it. We're going to need to surge health resources into places that can't help themselves. I mean, something right now that you're already seeing, which is depressing, is that China has been more helpful to Italy than the EU has in terms of helping them get testing kits and other things. But if we're going to stop this because of the way these things become endemic, we're going to need to help surge healthcare resources, not just here, which is going to be hard enough, but into places that are going to get this, say in Latin America, that are not going to have the sophistication of healthcare systems uh, that, that we do. And so it is one thing to have careful border policy that is a regrettable but necessary step during a public health crisis. It is another thing to have oppositional and conflict-oriented um, rhetoric towards other countries, towards people who are outsiders, towards immigrants, etc. Because just as you as, as you were saying, it is both true that here, in terms of immigrants, I mean, I live in, in the, the Bay Area, right? You have homeless encampments here that we're really going to have to think about very hard because those could be both very hard hit on their own terms, but also um, um, spreading spaces for these kinds of diseases. You actually need to work in those places, make sure you're surging resources into them. That's also going to be true beyond our own borders. So I, I think it is very important, actually, what Biden is saying about how he would engage with the rest of the world, because Donald Trump is clearly wants to close down, but not just close down. He wants to isolate us by making everybody else angry as he attacks them for short term political advantage. And that isn't just a gross thing to be doing, but it is actually a dangerous thing to be doing. No, absolutely. And this has always been what the sort of, you know, namby pamby liberals have said about international relations is that there's an important cooperative aspect and that problems like pandemic disease and climate change require cooperation across international lines and blah, 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 blah. And I think we've learned that a segment of the electorate doesn't want to hear about it. Um, but it's still 
true. And like all these million things, you know, one thing Trump has done a lot in the international relations uh, sphere is sort of take advantage of the short term possibility of defaulting on trust. Right. So like one thing that happened in the uh, USMCA negotiations was we just jammed up the Canadian government and took advantage of the fact that we are a bigger country with a larger economy to force them to make unilateral concessions about dairy exports. And it was this thing where, you know, for a while, some people were like, oh, no, you can't do that. And Trump, you know, I think what Trump would tell you is, look, he blew past the conventional wisdom. He saw the true power of America and he just took his moment and he did it, right? But then the larger question is like, to what end? Like, why poison the international well for the sake of marginally increasing cheddar cheese exports to Canada, right? Like, what? Like, was that important? You know, like, are we going to look back 50 years from now and be like, Trump, he really delivered for that one yogurt guy. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it, like, is, is the juice worth the squeeze on this kind of stuff? Now, you know, like, what kind of help do we need? What kind of help might we need in the future? It's it's difficult to say, right? But you remember that, like, on 9-11, the United States government wanted to immediately ground all transatlantic air flights. So what were we going to do? Well, we asked Canada, could we tell all the planes bound from Europe that they were going to land in Canadian airports? And the Canadian government said, sure. You know, and like that, that was good. Like that was helpful. And that was not foreseeable. I don't think anybody would have said, well, the reason we're doing this is that in the future we might need airplanes to land somewhere in Newfoundland. So we want to have a cooperative relationship. But it's good. It's good to have a cooperative relationship. So if you need something and another country can do it, that they're not holding you up and being like, well, you fucked us on that dairy thing. So now we want to come back and have like a bargain about cottage cheese. There's airplanes in the air, right? It would be really, really shitty. Um, And that's like the problem with Trump's whole transactional worldview. He is so some people have been saying Ross Douthat has been saying, oh, there's an irony that this like germaphobe president who hates China wasn't able to stop this like Chinese infection. But it's not. It's it's like it's not that ironic. This is a problem that can't be thought of in terms of zero sum power politics. And he's completely incapable of grasping that. So like he says, well, we're not going to halt travel from the UK because they have very strong borders. Um, Stephen Miller seems to have gotten him confused about the relationship between the intra-European Schengen agreement and like the external immigration stuff he cares about. I mean, who can even follow what Trump is doing? But he's like, he's not even he's not even trying. Let me say a couple words on on Bernie Sanders here, because he also gave a speech responding to the crisis today. I thought in many ways his good speech it was also very illustrative of the differences between him and Joe Biden, him and Donald Trump, him and a lot of politicians. So one, I thought Sanders gave a good speech, as he often does. He really emphasized what was interesting about Joe Biden's speech was you could tell that he was he just had a speech written by the scientists and the public health officials and the economists. And whereas Bernie's speech was a very Bernie speech, but which its uh, primary sort of trope was that we have to listen to the scientists, the public health professionals, um, not as much to the economists. Bernie's speech was what I would say you call in sort of politics and a now more than ever address, which is like now more than ever, given the crisis we're in, we need to do all the things I've wanted to do this whole time. And I think to Bernie's credit, He's right about a lot of that. I mean, Sanders has been out there on we would be in better shape today. It wouldn't solve the problem by any means, but we'd be in better shape today if we had Medicare for all and it was easier for people 
to, uh, to, to just go to a doctor when they needed one. We'd be in better shape today if we had paid family leave and paid sick leave for all workers and childcare that worked better and, and so on. So one of the things Bernie Sanders was doing in that speech was really using coronavirus to make the argument for his broader agenda um, and, the, and to the idea that his broader agenda would in general have been a good idea to already have. Um, beyond that, I thought he had he both had some of the same ideas as Joe Biden in terms of you know short term stimulus. I thought he did all the other thing though that I think is always notable about Sanders and that I found affecting in his speech. If the meta message of Joe Biden's speech is that this is what I would be like as president and I would deal with this emergency as an emergency, the meta message of Sanders' speech is that as president, I would never forget the least among us. I mean, it was very it was not nearly as much a speech about coronavirus and how to respond to it on behalf of everyone as Biden's was like Biden's speech was very much aimed, I would say, at like a nervous, you know, 47 year old suburban worker, that kind of that kind of like intended audience. Mm -hmm. You know, Bernie Sanders gave a lot more attention to the poor, to the homeless, to immigrants, to the people he's really in politics to help. And on the one hand, that created a somewhat narrower speech. And on the other hand, it's really important that somebody's out there saying that. He also made a point, and I thought this was very important. I've been doing some writing on the amount of fear and social isolation and loneliness you're particularly going to have among the most affected populations here, the elderly, the disabled. He had a very good idea, I thought, for spinning up very rapidly and staffing very heavily, which, by the way, could also be a good jobs program. Uh, just hotlines people could call to get answers. I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, many people, I think, in their families are fielding a lot of calls from older relatives. I mean, this is a scary moment for a lot of people. And you could feel that Sanders felt that and wanted to respond to it. So it, it was an interesting moment. I mean, in a way, you could see Biden pivoting to the general and Sanders still making sort of his argument for what the Democratic Party and then the, the country should become. But within that, I thought you you did see a lot of the power of the Sanders agenda because it just really is a case that a lot of things he has been arguing for and was arguing for in the speech. It would be good to have in place right now today and not have to um, like hope we pass it sometime in 2023. Well, and you know, this whole thing, it's I think gotta be in some ways uh sad if you if you embrace uh Bernie's sort of social democratic vision that this crisis is coming at what looks like a low point of his campaign because it is really so illustrative of I think the most appealing moral themes of Sanders's campaign, right? So you have like everybody is talking about how well we have to make testing for coronavirus free. Like we have to do you know, this, that, and the other thing, because it's this huge emergency. And like the basic Sanders question about like this whole thing is like, well, why not all the time, right? Like, why is it good to be driven yeah. into bankruptcy uh, because you have cancer if it's bad to be driven into bankruptcy if you have coronavirus, right? And to say that, like, look, like this is just our mind happens to be focused at the moment on the question of what happens if you are ill and you need help and you don't have a lot of money. There's newspaper articles about that, whereas we wouldn't ordinarily write an article that's like, oh, this guy got sick and then he didn't have any more money. And it's really sad. Um, and that's always been for decades. Like Bernie's point about the political media is like it doesn't focus on these kinds of tangible human problems that are now coming to a fore in coronavirus. And as you say, it's not it's not like passing Medicare for all would fix this public health emergency, but it's that 
Um, right. A lot of European countries have national health care. Right. I mean, and actually, right like pe- people don't design national health care systems to be adequately resilient to these crises. There's, there's like a lot of technical objections you can level to that kind of analysis. But it's that this is a moment that calls for a spirit of solidarity. Right. The whole point. I mean, we uh, there have been other weeds episodes about this, but like the whole point of everything in social distancing is not that, like, if I get sick, it's going to be so bad. Like, I will have a fever. I'll cough. I'll get over. It, but it's that we have to care about the community writ large. There are vulnerable populations here, and we need to take care of those vulnerable populations by halting infection. But social distancing has tremendous economic costs to service sector workers, to tipped workers, to, to all kinds of hourly employees. So now we also need to do something for them. We probably should be closing schools to stop infection, but we rely on the schools to provide social safety nets. So it's like, think big, think about more people. And the best version of Bernie Sanders is about that moral vision. And this is a time when I'm really struck by the, the power of that vision. And, you know, I think we're we're not sort of going to delve into the, the micro details of the primary, uh, but it's sort of, I mean, there's never like a, I don't want to say it would be good for Bernie to have had a huge crisis three months ago, but it, it's like, this is why Bernie Sanders style politics is appealing to the people who it appeals to. Yes, I, I think there are a lot of I will say that I think there are a lot of people in the primary, including a lot of Elizabeth Warren supporters who feel like if only the crisis had come earlier for their candidate. Um, But let's take a break here and go to some of the wider political dimensions of this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. 
So something you're seeing in the way Trump is talking about this, thinking about it, is he clearly perceives a quite significant threat here to his presidency. And I think he should. So I don't want to talk about this in a kind of crass political way, but I do think it's important, given that we are in an election year and we have been talking about presidential candidates, to just discuss, like, what do we know about what something like coronavirus and its many, many reverberations throughout the economy and society, what, what do we know about what that might do to the election? Michael Tesler is a political scientist at UC Irvine, wrote a good piece about this for the monkey cage, just running through some of the mechanisms through which it could affect the election. Uh, there are a bunch, but let me start with this one because I think it's the most surefire. If we know anything about elections, it is that the thing that matters in them in presidential elections is the economy. So to, to quote Tesla here, in presidential contests from 1948 to 2016, every percentage point increase or decrease in election year gross domestic product growth per capita is associated with about a two to three percentage point increase or decrease in the incumbent party's vote share. It has been said many times, including on this show, that Donald Trump's single greatest weapon in the election is that the economy has for his presidency been pretty strong. But right now, the economy is collapsing. Um, or if that's a little bit too strong, the stock market is collapsing. The stock market is collapsing, but we expect that the GDP numbers are going to be way, way down. I mean, most economists I'm talking to expect that we are going to go into recession. Yes. And so that is, you know, if you just like think about it off of this, that is a couple points decrease in where the economy is, which could lead, which could mean a couple points decrease in uh Donald Trump's two-party vote share, and given how close the 2016 election was, that's like quite catastrophic for him. Yes. The thing about Trump that makes him, I think, extraordinarily vulnerable to this kind of thing, and, and I don't know, you know, because people can surprise you, but Trump does not appear to be good at being president, right? And he never has. Like, his approval ratings have been on the low side throughout his presidency. But what's been keeping him aloft is that, like, things have actually been going reasonably well for sort of the median American. So if you are inclined to like Trump because you agree with him on some foundational social—I mean, you know all this identity stuff better, better than I do, but it's like— if you want to take a generous view of Trump, there has been enough stuff in objective reality to make you think like, aha, like the media is not giving this guy a fair shake, right? Even though you just look with your two eyes at like how he's behaving and you're like, this is not how you do the job of being president. Like something silly, like little, but you know, when he like shoved the president of Macedonia at a NATO meeting and it's like, well, okay, that didn't do any tangible harm to anybody, but like, why would you do that? And it leaves him without, I think, any reservoir of benefit of the doubt when things start going badly to anybody who feels conflicted about him because he doesn't for a guy who's obsessed with like like the look and like casting his team, he himself is like terribly cast as president. He doesn't convey yes. a sense of calmness, of stability, of concern, of empathy. Like even when he's there and he he's reading his script and he's like, it's a horrible infection. It doesn't sound like he's worried. You know, he, he didn't like say anything that like acknowledges people's fears, but then tries to calm them. He, he doesn't he doesn't do any of those kind of roles. And if the unemployment rate starts rising, I mean, I think the bottom could really fall out from his presidency, like a like a wily e. coyote type moment where suddenly everyone is like, 
Like, what is this? Like, why did we put this bozo in charge? Um, and of course, it's not to say like he'll get zero percent of the vote or something, because, you know, people people care about abortion. People care about guns. People care about all the all the stuff that makes them want to vote for Trump. But when you're talking about, you know, a, a swing electorate, anybody who's not like 100 percent all in on, on Trumpism, what's been keeping him aloft is a sense that despite all the haterade, like things are really going well. And right now, things do not seem like they are going well. And, you know, we don't know. I mean, can the economy be resilient if we deliver a stimulus bill such that it's in strong shape in October? Um, I think maybe uh, some people have asked me, well, like, what does the political science say about the timing of economic growth? And I have that right here. Yeah. So it's like Q2, right, is what's the literature. Consensus. So numerous studies show to, to quote Tesla, numerous studies show the election year economy influences presidential election results far more than the cumulative growth throughout the term. And in general, and I, I can tell you this, having collaborated with political scientists on building these models, like they will look at Q2 and Q3 growth. You can usually create a model. We did this back when I ran Wonk Blog. We created a model in June of the election year. So just a couple months from now that called the final popular vote to within point one percentage points. So you can do a lot just knowing where growth is in the middle of the year if you have those numbers. I will just say something that if you follow the media on all this, the media is very interested in like the Trump loving voter. Right. There's a lot of uh, like media, like journalistic safaris out to like in this town in Pennsylvania. They love Trump. And like, why do they love Trump? And they don't care that Trump has done X, Y and Z. But if you talk to Democratic strategists, they're not worried about that voter at all because like they're not going to get that voter. The voter they're worried about is a voter who doesn't really like Trump, like thinks he's sort of a bad guy, doesn't like the tweeting, doesn't like the chaos in Washington. But their wages have been going up some, like they've got a good job. They just like, they don't like, they like they may not want to rock the boat and they don't love the Democrats either. And so if Trump loses those voters, those voters who they don't like him particularly, but so long as the economy is going well, they may not want to, to to make any big changes. Then as you say, like the, the, the bottom really falls out. And the flip in the primary matters, right? Like two months ago, the terror of Democratic strategists was you're going to go to a voter and you're going to say to him, like, Trump kind of seems like an asshole. Right. And the voters going to be like, yeah. And then you can be like, so do you want to vote for a socialist who's promising a revolution? And he's going to be like, actually, no, like things are fine. But now it's like if the world is falling apart and what Joe Biden is promising you is that like competent people will be in charge. Like that sounds pretty good. Yeah. So then there, there's the other piece of this. So obviously this is the economic dimension of it, but then there's the, the simple dimension of what coronavirus really is, which is a disaster. Um, and we have a lot of evidence on disasters. And what's interesting about that evidence is that on one level, it shows that people just punish whoever is in charge for disasters. There's famous studies, although there have been some questions about them, about shark attacks and rain. But but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. There's a good study by Gasper and Reeves called Make It Rain. And uh, I'm just reading some some clips from it here, which is in a county level analysis of gubernatorial and presidential elections from 1970 to 2006, we find that electorates punish presidents and governors for severe weather damage. But this is a really interesting thing, because I think that oftentimes the analysis doesn't go beyond this point. They continue. But when the president rejects a request to buy the governor for federal assistance, the president is punished and the governor is rewarded at the polls. The electorate is able to separate random events from governmental responses and attribute actions based on the defined roles of these two politicians. So I've been talking to political scientists about this today, and this is something they've been saying to me, which is that the 
public it is very important how the public constructs a political narrative about what has happened here. And what they've all been saying to me is the huge danger for Donald Trump isn't just coronavirus. It is coronavirus plus a bunch of the things he said that as the coronavirus gets very bad, I mean, people will die. Their lives are going to change. There is going to be a lot of pain. These things are going to be played on loop. I've just before I came on here, I like collected a couple of Donald Trump quotes, including because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. That mm-hmm. quote is not going to look good in a couple of months. He said, when you have 15, which is the number of cases we had a week or two ago, when you have 15 and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down close to zero, that is a pretty good job we've done. We're at the low level. As they get better, we take them off the list. So we're going to be down pretty soon to only five people. And we could just be at one or two over the next period. He said, the testing has been amazing, actually. <laughs> he just right. and like I have like like dozens of these. And so the problem for Donald Trump is he's made a lot of actual substantive mistakes in something that's going to change people's lives that is going to like possibly like lead to the deaths of people they love and that it is understood and he is on record. Like people don't quite remember this necessarily, but in 2008, one of the really damaging things for John McCain was saying as the economy was bottoming out, the fundamentals of the economy remain strong. And Donald Trump has just created a hundred, the fundamentals of the economy remain strong moments in the past couple of days. And it's not like the Democratic ad makers haven't noticed. And as such, the American public is also going to notice. And that whole McCain thing was even a little unfair. Um, and in a way that I think this would not be right. I mean, uh, I, I could I could try to explain like the point John McCain was trying to make there with a, a this is like a classic gaffe. You take something a, a little out of context that sounds insensitive. But like there's all these Trump tweets from just like last week. He's like stock market. It's going to be amazing. He sent Larry Kudlow on television to like tell people to buy the dip like two weeks ago and the market's lost. It has been contained. Larry Kudlow said that multiple times that this has been contained right, or this is very close to being contained. And, and there's been no caution, right? And so one thing that I do worry about as we go forward over the next sort of couple months is sometimes when people are underwater, right, they do crazy things. You know, if you are running a business and you know the business is going bankrupt, but like you haven't lost it yet to the bank, you might do something really reckless to try to save it, right? And this is a, a concern that I have about Donald Trump running for re-election. Like an interesting thing that happened at the end of George W. Bush's term is his presidency was in a complete shambles. Uh, the economy was falling apart. His approval ratings were terrible. His an intra-party rival was being nominated to um, succeed him. And he just kind of disappeared, right? And he let Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke um in cooperation with Nancy Pelosi, sort of run the government for a few months. And it was the right thing to do. You know, he didn't he didn't like try to insert himself in a weird way that would somehow rescue his reputation. And then he let his reputation get rescued in the interim by like doing some paintings and being nice to Michelle Obama. But like, what is Trump going to do if his approval rating goes down to 30 and the unemployment rate is seven? And like everybody hates him, like to just like try to stabilize the situation. There's all these kind of quotes out there. And like you just don't know, you know, like this is this is the worst thing that I that has happened in Trump's term. It is on the verge of being one of the worst things that like we have witnessed in our lives playing out in the United States of America. 
And nothing about Trump makes me think that he's going to find the bottom and start managing it in a responsible way going forward. I think that is a good place to end, but also a good scary thing to meditate on. Yes, let's, uh, well, think it all over. Okay, um, well, thanks, uh, Ezra. Uh, thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. Uh, thanks to the uh, fine people at California Closets for uh, helping me install all these uh, clothes around me to, to dampen the sound. Um, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday.